Hello, my name is James Cohen, and I'm an associate professor of ESL bilingual education at Northern Illinois University. I am delighted today to be joined uh, by my friend, Dr. Dana Isawi, who is an assistant professor of counseling at NIU. She joined NIU in the fall of 2017 and holds a PhD in counselor education and supervision from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and a master's degree in school counseling from Marymount University. She has experience in teaching a variety of graduate courses in mental health counseling, school counseling, and play therapy, as well as providing clinical supervision to graduate students. Dr. Asawi has clinical experience in the school and community settings, both locally and internationally. Her professional experience also includes counseling intervention development implementation and evaluation. Her research and presentations focus on multicultural issues in counseling, especially on the traumatic experiences of refugees and counselors working with trauma survivors. Her presentations also focus on cultural considerations in play therapy and in working with families from diverse backgrounds. So as a, as a short introduction to the topic, uh, and I probably should have read this before introducing my guest today, um, but immigrants and refugees flee their often war-torn or poverty-stricken countries and search for a, a safer home. Since 1975, Illinois itself has resettled more than 123,644 refugees from more than 60 countries. Nearly one-third of these refugees are children. Immigrant and refugee children expect their new futures in America to be anchored by education, continued opportunity, and stability. Nevertheless, despite their resilience, many of these children confront monumental challenges related to education, race, and socioeconomic status that become barriers that can prevent them from fulfilling their dreams. Educators need the information to meet the diverse needs of immigrants and refugee children in schools. So with that introduction and the introduction to Dr. Isawi, uh, I would like to say welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you, James. I'm good. I'm happy to be here today. Wonderful. Well, I'm really excited to, to have the opportunity to interview you. Uh, we've done a presentation on refugees and undocumented immigrants. Uh, maybe a year ago, and uh, I was really impressed with your knowledge and, and the, of this field. And, and so can you tell me to start, how did you become interested in working with refugees to begin with? Sure. I think like a lot of things that we dedicate um, significant amounts of time to in our lives, part of it is personal. So I do have some personal reasons for being interested in this topic and working with this population in, in particular. My grandparents actually were refugees. Um, so I grew up hearing their stories about their experiences and leaving their homes and, and the being separated from their home and, and, and where they felt like they belonged. Uh, so that was something that always was in the back of my mind growing up. And then when I became interested in the mental health field and specialized in, in mental health 
I got a um, one of my positions that I got is working with an international organization that served children and youth in particular. And I worked specifically on projects with um, youth and children who have experienced trauma, many of which um, were from immigrant and refugee backgrounds. So that was my introduction, my professional, I would say, introduction um, to this topic. And then as I pursued my education, my doctorate education, I really wanted to spend a year long working specifically at a um, agency, a clinical agency that served immigrant and refugee populations. And that's where I gained the majority of my clinical experience through these two main positions that I've held throughout the years. So as you can see, there are some personal but also professional experiences that inspire me and get me excited about this topic and this work. Would you mind telling us um, where you had your clinical experience or do, your, your research experience in a, in a, was it at a refugee camp in what country? It was actually in the U.S. I'd rather just leave it a little bit broad, but it was in, um, it is in, in the U.S. So I worked with refugees who have been set, resettled in the U.S. I do want to keep this um, broad just because I will share a couple of stories and I want to keep, protect the confidentiality of um, the clients that I've worked with. Absolutely. That totally makes sense. <laughs> so uh, can you talk about immigrants and refugee students' experiences in schools? Sure. So I, as you've mentioned, James, and thank you for that introduction, um, I have worked with children and youth for several years as a counselor. And one of the main similarities that really stands out to me until this day is the tremendous resilience and grit that these children possess. So I'm passionate about working in ch with children in general, but um, with immigrant and refugee children, I was inspired by the, the resilience despite the challenges and sometimes traumatic experiences that they've endured, whether before um, migration or during their migration. And I think it's difficult to make a general statement about the experience um, of immigrant and refugee children for a couple of reasons. One of them is that um, I do want to make the distinction between immigrant children and refugee children, the, the reasons why they've fled their countries as well as their status in the United States is different. So I don't want to get into the legal um, aspects of immigration, um, but they are distinct populations, although there are some similarities. Um, another Another reason is that there are so many factors that really affect their experience in schools. So I'm going to give you two, I'm going to tell you two stories about two of the clients that kind of, uh, that are on my mind uh, when we talk about this topic. So I remember one girl, um, she was an eight-year-old girl who was attending school for the past two years when I met her. And I remember her mother saying that, um, Sarah is really thriving. She's very happy. She speaks English very well, better than her own mom. And her mother was learning English from her. Um, and she continued to say that when they arrived to the U.S., the teachers, students, and neighbors were really supportive and accepting. So naturally, Sarah's um, adjustment in the U.S. was less challenging, I would say. 
and and she had a, a a pretty positive experience in adapting to her new school. So that's one example. And then the second example that I um, think of is a refugee adolescent that I worked with uh, who was still early on in adapting to his new school and the new environment. Um, and him, his mother, and two sisters spent a few years in a refugee camp before being resettled in the US. He was referred to me by his teacher who was really frustrated because he was always moving around and disrupting the classroom. Um, he had got into fights in, in school as well. So after meeting with um, Ahmed's mother, I learned that his education was disrupted because of war before they um, migrated and then was also disrupted the, the refugee uh, camp that they stayed in. Um, he had also lost his father and his brother before leaving their country. So you can imagine what that does to a child and then um, separation from their, their home, essentially. When he was resettled in the U.S. And, and started going to a public school, he struggled to meet with the language or, or um, adopting the language and struggled making friends in school. The family was struggling financially, so the basic, some of the basic needs weren't met. Um, and just the new environment was really hard for him to adapt um, in, in the, this new environment. So to be honest, I wasn't too surprised after I learned all of this. I wasn't too surprised that Ahmed was um, presenting with disruptive behaviors in school because of this background. And from these two stories, you can, you can see that there are so many factors that really impact the experiences of, of children in schools. And um, these experiences are unique to each child. Generally in schools, sometimes immigrant and refugee um, children uh, report feeling disempowered in their new setting because of the lack of language and um, having difficulty in adapting to be part of their new communities. However, I also found that um, children adapt pretty quickly, um, quicker than adults, and uh, begin to feel, um, once they start adapting into the culture, sometimes begin to feel a little bit distance from their family. So I think as a mental health professional and educators in schools, I think it's important to keep in mind these complex dynamics that play into the experiences of the children that we see in schools. So if you're, you're talking about these complex dynamics, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, and we'll, I think um, I, can, I will talk about some of the specific challenges that um, children face in particularly in school settings. So one of the first challenges, as you heard from Ahmed's story, the migration process results in gaps in their education. So when they come to school and they're placed in whichever school grade they're in, there is a gap in addition to the language barrier. They haven't been or they've had disrupted school attendance for, it could be for years in refugee camps. So that's one of the, the things that really stands out to educators when they receive um, 
whether immigrants or refugees as students in their schools. And that, of course, affects their academic performance, right? It's, it's natural that it, it will. Um, generally, we've noticed that refugee children have higher rates of school dropout um, and, and some factors that contribute to that higher uh, school dropout includes acculturation stress, poverty. A lot of times, um, refugee communities and immigrant communities uh, resettle in poverty-stricken communities. So they go to schools that have very limited resources. Um, the, the curriculum might not be as adaptable to their needs. Um, sometimes they resettle in unsafe neighborhoods. They, when they go to a new neighborhood or to a new school, some children might face discrimination um, and have lack of academic support and psychological support. So these are some of the reasons or factors that can contribute to um, higher rates of school dropout, but also some challenges, right, that, that make their experience um, more complicated and challenging. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about happen to immigrant students in general. Yeah. Right? Whether they're documented or undocumented, immigrant students have a very, oftentimes have a very difficult time adapting to the school setting and the community as a whole. Is it possible to distinguish, like is there a difference between the refugee immigrants versus quote unquote regular immigrants? Like is there one, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the main distinction between these two populations is the reason why they left their homes. So refugees usually come from war-torn countries and they do flee their countries because of reasons based on their faith or their sexual orientation or political opinion. So they come from either civil or political unrest um, or countries that are affected by these factors. And then immigrants um, usually come for a better life in their countries that are a lot of times are poverty stricken. The other difference other than, so keeping in mind why people or these students, family or families, and sometimes uh, I, I do want to say also that sometimes whether they're immigrants or refugees, there are unaccompanied minors and those are children who cross borders of countries alone with no adult around. So their, their st immigration status is one thing, and then the experience or the journey that they take to get from one country to the other um, makes their experiences distinct. Uh, for refugees, when they leave their country, they could stay in refugee camps for years. Um, I've worked with some adults, not, not children, who have been in refugee camps for five and 10 years. So if you have a child who have spent the majority of their life in a refugee camp, their experience is a little different than a refugee or another immigrant who had a really dangerous journey from crossing the border from one place to the other, um, but the duration is a little shorter. So it, the, the 
the journey of immigration also makes these two groups distinct. And um, particularly when we talk about mental health and, and social emotional needs, whenever people hear refugee, they might think trauma. And I do, wanna, I, I do wanna talk about trauma for a little bit, but I also want to caution folks from um, thinking that refugee is synonymous to trauma or all uh, refugee children experience trauma and have mental health concerns as a result because that is not really true. Uh, I've worked with some, I think Sarah is a good example, um, the story that I shared earlier is a good example of a, of a child who went through a difficult journey, um, but was able, but came out of a, a, maybe a traumatic experience without any mental health concerns. I think in my experience, it's been that the majority of, of children are pretty resilient and, and they um, have the resources and with the appropriate support can overcome these experiences. That makes sense. It, you know, a combination of resilience plus or with support by adults is, is, is basically what you're saying is the answer then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. The internal resilience, but also the support of the environment and adults. Yeah. So in your experience, what do educators in school settings need to learn about refugees and immigrants in general in order to work with them effectively? Yeah. Um, I think through collaborating with educators and specifically school counselors, because that's my background and specialty. And from my own experience, I think the first thing we need to know is know ourselves. And what I really mean by that is um, we really need to, to carefully and thoughtfully examine and work through our own feelings, maybe perhaps our biases uh, towards these populations so we can appreciate that resilience that I mentioned and the resources and assets that these students possess and have that we can use to help support them succeed in schools. Um, and then the next thing after we look at ourselves, compassion. Compassion goes a long way. Um, if, you know, compassion for their, hu their humanness and recognizing also the degree of diversity in terms of their experiences. And that goes back to your previous question about, you know, what are the distinctions? What makes immigrants and, and refugee experiences different? So recognizing that um, of course, then it's really important to learn about the students' social environment, their culture, family, and community. And that brings the point to when I talk about refugees and immigrants, they're not homogenous groups. There's a lot of diversity um, within these groups. So being careful and paying attention to that um, is important. Um, and having this knowledge really helps us provide culturally responsive and meaningful education experiences to these students. Um, you know, when I first started working with um, refugees and immigrants, I had to do a lot of learning other than looking inside and making sure that I am working through my lens that I'm looking at these children um, and, and youth. I also had to do a lot of learning. Right, I had to do a lot of supervision, consultation, trainings, 
And that empowered me. I felt like I became more competent um, in serving these populations. So I really encourage educators to seek additional training to further enhance their knowledge and refine their interventions in schools, whether it's teachers or administrators. Um, the, the training is having that knowledge and training is really empowering. And I found it very empowering. And another thing that was really helpful um, for me working with this population or these populations, I should say, is knowing what outside resources exist. We also know that schools have limited resources and limited funds. That's unfortunate reality of our schools. And in no way I want to sound like schools are not doing enough or teachers are not doing enough. That's, that's the opposite. I've worked with amazing administrators and teachers who are so passionate about serving uh, and doing the best that they can. But the reality is in some cases, they don't have the resources. Schools don't have the resources. And that's where collaboration and really knowing what outside, outside resources exist to support these populations. So knowing community agencies, uh, faith or culturally based organizations, and also mental health providers who specialize in working with immigrant and refugee populations, just having these collaborations and this network of support is really important as well. So, in, in it, and specifically with school counselors, can you address what is their role in yeah. addressing the refugee needs? Yeah, this is really my specialty, right? School right. counseling, mental health, uh, that's really, yeah. <laughs> that's really um, I, I, I can answer that question too. So I really believe that as school counselors, and I was a school counselor, um, they are in a unique position to support the development and success of student immigrants and refugees. One of the... Um, when I first started presenting and doing research on uh, working with refugees, so counselors working with refugees, one school counselor came up to me and she's like, you know, most children, of course, all children should be in school. Most children go to school, including refugees and immigrants. And I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Those are the people who I need to be contacting and developing relationships with, uh, even as a counselor educator and a researcher. Searcher, I want to be connected with school counselors because they're at the front lines, um, along with teachers, of course, who um, might be the first people who are detecting certain behaviors or, or, or um, social or emotional needs for students. So I think they're, they're at a, a very um, unique position to be able to um, work with this population in a place that is less stigmatizing, especially when we talk about mental health, this, these issues could be stigmatizing in a lot of, um, in many cultures, especially collective cultures, um, who um, maybe attribute psychological concerns to culture-specific or religious phenomena and, and seek treatment from indigenous or religious healers. I think school is a really ideal place because it's less um, stigmatizing. It's convenient. Children are there in school um, at least five days a week. So school counselors also have the advantage of communicating with teachers who, who 
see these children every day and, and can detect, as I mentioned, any issues that might um, arise. Also, school counselors are leaders in their buildings, so they can design and lead comprehensive, culturally responsive school counseling programs that meet um, the social. So our, these are really the roles and response, a part of the roles and responsibilities of school counselors um, to meet the needs of diverse populations. I think about if I want to talk about a little bit more specific, how do school counselors or how can they um, address the needs and especially uh, social emotional needs of children or students? And, and um, I think about their role in kind of three tiers. One of them or tier one focuses on systemic interventions. And what I mean by that are these are school-wide interventions. So for example, it could be implementing practices that create an accepting school climate, right? Or delivering school-wide trainings on refugee and immigrant mental health and cultural awareness because school counselors and other mental health um, school personnel are the mental health experts in that building, right? So they can um, also help support teachers and administrators and other staff in raising awareness. The second tier that I think of is a little bit more specialized. So um, uh, services or activities that focus on classroom and small group prevention and intervention services. It could be classroom guidance lessons. It could be creating small um, groups or peer support groups. So smaller uh, groups. And then the third Tier, I think of it as focusing on individualized services that are very unique to meet the uh, specific needs of, of um, immigrant and refugee children. And these are more focused services that could include individual counseling, for example. So I think of them in this like school-wide, because you would hope that in the school-wide interventions, you're implementing activities that are preventative and interventions for a large, for the whole school, including non-immigrant and non-refugee children, and then becoming more specialized. So you actually kind of answered my next question I was going to ask, but is there any other kind of services or support that you feel could be helpful for immigrants and, and refugee children in schools? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things that come to my mind, and one of them is not as much as a service, but really establishing a welcoming and safe environment. And all school um, personnel contribute to that, right? Showing that the school appreciates diversity. One of the things that I notice when I go to schools, are there... Um, signs in different languages that represent the student body? Are there pictures that represent cultural diversity that represents that student body? And I can imagine that goes a long way for a new immigrant student or refugee student who's going to, for the first time into this new environment, foreign environment, and then seeing a picture of someone who looks like them, right? Um, so that's, th this, these are some simple things that I think of that I am aware of when I go to certain buildings, right? So uh, I can imagine how, how important those are for 
schools. And then uh, for children, a couple of things are related to policies. So administrators and leaders in, in those school buildings um, have a, a, a really large role in implementing policies that promote connection with, with immigrant and refugee communities and having um, maybe home school connections, as well as maybe policies related to having teachers, if you have a school that has a large immigrant or refugee population, have requiring school personnel to attend certain trainings, right? To raise their awareness and expand their knowledge. So they're just better equipped to serve this population and support the success of these students. Um, what kind so of training would you recommend? I think the first thing I would think about is some kind of cultural awareness, cultural competent trainings. Um, and I, I, I believe that teachers and school personnel and especially administrators have some, some training in those topics. Um, but I'm thinking about trainings that are specific to immigrant and refugee populations to really understand we're living in a world that's policies and, and laws and regulations are always changing. So in order to be up to date on how are these policies and changes affecting and impacting the students who are coming to your school. Um, so specific trainings related to the needs and the experiences of immigrant and refugee children. That's kind of what I'm thinking about. And that'll help, that connects to helping teachers create curricula that connect um, the, the assignments and the curriculum to the cultural context of the school and the student's environment and culture as well. For example, one of the things that one, I, I was reading um, an article and one of the examples that were used, one of the, uh, a teacher was using an assignment for the students and the assignment asked students to talk about their um, experience uh, during the Christmas holiday. And then the teacher realized that a third of her students were non-Christian. So just being, and, and you know, being aware and, and, and having a curriculum that's culturally sensitive to all students, honestly, based on their race, ethnicity, religion, um, ability, that, and that could be a very simple fix. You know, the same assignment could be talk about your favorite holiday. Um, so that's an inclusive assignment. Um, so that's, you know, having culturally relevant teaching um, is something that teachers can, and I believe a lot of teachers are doing so, um, but that's one of the things when I think about how can we serve um, or how can teachers and uh, administrators serve and support these students. Um, these are some of the things that come to my mind. I think one of the, th a few things that I wanted to mention, and I forgot when I was talking about the school counselor's role, in high school, one of the big things that school counselors can contribute to is college and career planning. That's, uh, some of the immigrant and refugee students that I worked with or encountered or my students worked with um, were the first people to go through the U.S. educational system 
or and were for the first people to go to college. So they didn't really have guidance outside of school on how to apply for schools, how uh, to find sources for financial aid. And to be honest with you, these are complicated processes. So having support for students um, in, in, that, in that sense is, is so important. You know, when I was doing my dissertation, all of the students in my dissertation were, happened to be undocumented. And I remember talking about your comment you just made about the, the importance of the counselor, you know, guiding students through the, the, the complicated maze labyrinth to get to college it's crazy and I remember one of the students I interviewed said well I met with the counselor she gave me a bunch of papers to read over mm-hmm. and then that counselor left and I don't have a I don't have a, a relationship with this new counselor yeah so I'm not gonna go to college and I'm like, and I looked at her and I said what do you mean Go make a, you know, go talk with this new counselor. And she said, I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. How can I, how can I go to him? And she was, you know, it was really sad. And no matter what I said to her, she would not, it's almost, it's not like that she didn't want to take the initiative. It was just that she was really afraid of going to doing something that was unknown to her. Yeah. You know, could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when I, when I hear this story, I think about the importance of trust. It sounded, it sounds like this student really trusted the first school, the first school counselor is going, is, has her best interest in mind right? She's not going to misguide her. She's going to give her the information that she needs and that she's, she had built this relationship that's, that's built on trust. And that is huge, huge for not only students, but their families. Um, because this is a foreign system and, and everything is new. So building that relationship is so important, whether um, it's with parents or with the student, but that student really trusted the first school counselor. And that's, school counselors are trained, right? We, at mental health professionals, we are trained in in communication skills and <laughs> developing relationships with people. All what we do is based on relationships. So building that relationship and trust is is so important because you can give them the information in paper, right? But w- the, the buy-in is the relationship between the, the school personnel or teacher or any educator and that child. And, you know, another thing that I was thinking about um, when, you, when you told this story is this student might not have anyone outside of school to support her and guide her through this process. You know, my hope is for, uh, for, for children to have their families, relatives, neighbors, you know, someone in their community, even if it's not their immediate family or parents guiding them through this process. Um, But unfortunately, as I mentioned, for many immigrant and refugee students, they're the first ones going through this. So their parents and families and communities might not be able to to help them. So their their first and main go-to is 
is their school counselor or their teacher. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a very uh, difficult situation for, for these students, isn't it? Yeah, and from the story that you shared, it's, it seems like it's so, it was so simple, but then it had a tremendous effect on this student's life, right? She might really not go to college because... She didn't go to college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because That's that one counselor left, not to blame the counselor, but you know, that, that one counselor left, and, and unfortunately, counselors have such a huge workload. They do. You know, school counselors have, you know, they, there might be four or five counselors for 2,000 student high school, which is crazy. Yeah. And so I'm glad I, that you're mentioning this, James, because I, I really, I talked about all of the things that school counselors can do and like best practices and uh, i can imagine school counselors listening to this and being <laughs> out of her mind we have all these things you know in high school especially we have all these recommendations to write college recommendations and all of these things that we have to do in addition to our our role and you're telling us to do so much more and that's why i want to emphasize that everyone in the school has a role in supporting um, the, these students. I think supporting all students, but since our topic is, is particularly uh, pertaining to Im immigrant and refugee students, everyone in the building has a role. Um, it's not only school counselors. School counselors can lead programs. They can uh, design programs, but in order to provide comprehensive support for these students, I think everyone needs to chip in. Yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that everybody is overworked, everyone you know, is overworked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and schools are many schools are underfunded. So, I I, I do want to acknowledge that as well. Right. Um, right. And that's why building relationships and networks and collaborating with outside uh, resources is important. Um, you know, mental health school counselors, even if we talk about mental health services and psychosocial um, services for students, school counselors can have a, a limited scope in that, in that sense. So it might be outsourcing. I'm seeing more schools outsourcing mental health agencies to come in the school and work with generally with their students um, because a lot of times it's just outside of the scope of what a school counselor does. If a student needs in-depth counseling, you know, outside resources have to be brought in to meet the the high need mental health needs i should say um, of students something that you said at the beginning really struck me as as very very powerful and it actually uh, dr jq adams another podcaster that you know another person we interviewed for this podcast he says we need to look at the students we need, to, we need to look at, other, at, at the other, quote-unquote other, yeah. as a human being, Yeah. right? And you said something to, along those lines at the very beginning, that we need to look at their humanity, yeah. right? We need to look at them as human beings. Because if we don't look at them as human beings, then imagine what we can, how we can interact and treat them if we don't view them as human beings. Did you want to expand on that a little bit? 
and and then um, perhaps uh, give us your contact information, what you feel free, what you feel open to, to give providing, and perhaps some resources as too. Sure. Um, it related to, and, and that's the seeing the humanity of people in general, and specifically these two groups of populations, immigrants and refugees, in order to be able to see their humanity, we need to look at our own selves and really thoughtfully, thoughtfully examine and critically examine how am I viewing this student in my class and addressing those. And that takes tremendous, I say this not lightly because it takes tremendous courage it takes a lot of open-mindedness to be able to look at myself and examine my biases, right? Examine my behaviors. Where are they coming from? I'm treating this student differently than this student. Where is that coming from? And looking at myself. And before I am able to do that, it's really difficult to be genuine and be able to see the humanity of, of others unless I look at myself first. So that's really if, if I want folks to get anything out of, out of this podcast, I think it is time for us to examine our own selves and views and how we view um, these children and youth in order to be able to support them and support their success in schools. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a beautiful statement to make. Do you know any resources that, that, that you think would be really beneficial for teachers and school counselors and administrators and everybody else listening to the all educators could tap into? Yeah, sure. There are, um, there are a few, websites. One of them that I wanted to highlight is, and that's something I didn't touch too much on, but there is a concept of trauma-informed schools. And as I mentioned, students who go through um, these experiences might have trauma reactions. So having information about what does it mean to have trauma-informed schools or trauma-informed practices in classrooms, and one of the websites that I reference a lot of times is a website for Treatment and Services Adaptation Center. And there's a uh, traumaawareschools.org is the website for what I'm talking about. And what I like about it is um, it has components. It breaks down the trauma-informed schools into components, like the impact of trauma, what services, trauma services schools can provide, um, and some information about bullying and cyberbullying and secondary uh, traumatic stress that could affect providers or educators. So that was one of the resources that I wanted to um, highlight. There's a kit that I reference as well. It's from, it's out of Boston Children's Hospital and they developed a refugee and immigrant core stressors toolkit. And it has some assessments that questions that you could ask yourself or, or kind of observe about the child to assess where, if they are low risk or high risk or at moderate risk for trauma. 
and the uh, website is uh, redcap.tch.harvard.edu. So this toolkit was developed in collaboration um, between Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard University. And they reference a book that recently came out. It's, it's a mental health guide for working with immigrant and refugee youth. And part of, there is a chapter on schools in particular, providing services in schools. Um, so that is referenced in that website as well. Um, these are the, ma the main things that come to my mind right now when talking about resources for school personnel and um, educators. So would you mind sharing your email address? Oh, of course not. My email address is D as in Dana, my first name, and then Isawi, I-S-A-W-I, at N-I-U dot E-D-U. Very good. And I would have shared my office phone number, but with, <laughs> with the pandemic, I don't know how helpful that phone number would be right now. I know, um, I haven't tapped into my phone number. My phone, <laughs> I can only imagine how many, it's probably, my mailbox is probably full by now, I'm sure. Yeah. Once since going there. Uh, well, Dana, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. I sincerely appreciate it. And I'm sure the, the, the listeners appreciate your candor, your intelligence, your knowledge about this topic as, as much uh, as they appreciate it as much as I do. So thank you again for, for joining me today. You're very welcome, James. It's actually been my pleasure and you giving me this opportunity to talk about a topic that I'm so passionate about is I, I should thank you for that so thank you for having me it's been a pleasure